On Sunday afternoon, in the skies above Belarus, a Ryanair flight was suddenly, dramatically, forced by a foreign government to land in Minsk. What unfolded was described by some as a state-sponsored kidnapping. They were arresting the journalist, the guy. How scared he was? Super scared. I saw, I looked at him directly into his eyes and it was very sad. The man, snatched out of the sky, was a leading Belarusian journalist and the men who frog-marched him off the plane were members of the KGB in Belarus, acting under direct orders from their president. The really striking point is not so much the audacity of the Belarusian stunt, but I think we're paying the price for months and months where we've pandered to the Lukashenko regime and indulged it and not confronted it. And so Lukashenko thought he could get away with this and it appears that he may well do. What role has Russia played in this extraordinary episode? And amid a clamour of international condemnation, will anything really change? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, how Belarus hijacked a plane... The plane was only a couple of minutes out of getting into Lithuanian airspace, back into you know, the world of EU and NATO, when the crew was told that there was a bomb on board. That's Edward Lucas, Russia expert and Times columnist. He's describing the moment that Ryanair flight FR4978 from Athens to Vilnius ran into trouble. Flying over Belarus, a country often described as Eastern Europe's last dictatorship, the plane was forced to make an unscheduled stop. Passengers watched aghast as the most extraordinary and dramatic episode of what's being described as a state-sponsored hijacking unfolded in the skies. Alexander Lukashenko, the authoritarian leader of Belarus, had a particular interest in one of the passengers, a young journalist named Roman Protasevich. I think the first sign that something was amiss happened at Athens airport, where he was being hassled by some strange Russian-speaking guy, and he um, mentioned this to a friend. But I don't think in his wildest dreams he'd have thought that crossing Belarusian airspace on the way home to Vilnius, where he lives in exile, would have been dangerous because, after all, the Belarusian opposition leader had made exactly the same trip a few days earlier. That opposition leader is Svetlana Tikhonovskaya. To many in the country, she is the rightful president, having won, she claims, more than 60% of the vote at the elections last year. But the official election results were rigged sparking mass protests across the country. Europe called for the elections to be rerun and stopped recognising Alexander Lukashenko as the president of Belarus. Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, for her own safety, was forced into exile. So if she could fly over Belarus without a problem, surely a journalist would be safe flying in the same zone. They'd both been in Athens trying to rally support for the pro-democracy cause and they both live in Vilnius and so you would think that this was in effect an internal EU flight and nothing could possibly go wrong, but of course it did. And uh, MiG-29 appeared carrying weapons. 
it's a sort of elderly but perfectly effective Sovietiera warplane and would have been quite scary. They made it very clear that they had to go to Minsk airport, although that wasn't actually the nearest airport. Apparently this happened on the direct instructions of the Belarusian leader, Alexander Lukashenko, who I think is particularly sensitive to Oman because of his uh, very pointed criticism of Lukashenko in the very successful media outlet that he's founded. Roman uh, apparently was terrified when he found out they were going to land in Minsk and begged the Ryanair staff, the cabin crew, not to do this, explained that he would be a dead man if he was found to the hands of the um, Belarusian authorities, but they said there's nothing we can do. And he was then hauled off the plane along with his girlfriend. Travelling with Roman on that flight to the Lithuanian capital was his girlfriend, Sofia Sepega, a Russian national. She was detained alongside him, and there are now very real concerns for her well-being. She's um, a student in Vilnius, along with many other people who don't like the regime in Moscow. Vilnius has become sort of capital for exiles. And she's at the European Humanities University, which is an EU-sponsored liberal arts university in, in Vilnius. And it's not clear to me whether she was actually arrested or whether she chose to accompany Roman. There was one witness on the plane said he tried to give her his laptop in order to presumably protect whatever data was on it. And I fear that she will have a... I mean, for what we know of what happens to women when they fall into the clutches of the Belarusian regime, I'm afraid she's um, facing a very unpleasant time. According to eyewitnesses... Roman Protesevich immediately feared the worst. He was ashen-faced, physically trembling, and telling fellow passengers that handing him over to Belarus would be like signing a death warrant. They were arresting the journalist, the guy. How scared he was? Super scared. I saw, I looked at him directly into his eyes and it was very sad. Roman Protesevich and his girlfriend weren't the only passengers to leave the plane at Minsk, raising suspicions that agents from the shadowy Belarusian security services were on the plane. The crew and the passengers were all taken off the plane. What's rather mysterious is there's um, four or possibly three Russians who'd got on in Athens and then didn't continue the journey onto Vilnius. And that suggests that um, they may have been Russian or Belarusian secret agents or other officials or agents who were there to try and to, to ensure that the plane did actually land. So there's more mystery to be uncovered here. It's worth noting that the Belarusian KGB is still called the KGB. It's the Russian one that's changed its name. But in, in Belarus, there's just one organisation. It does foreign and domestic espionage and active measures, which is sort of thuggery. And um, it's still called the Committee of State Security, or KGB in Russian. But I think that the really striking point is not so much the audacity of the Belarusian stunt, but I think we're paying the price for months and months where we've pandered to the Lukashenko regime and indulged it and not confronted it. And so Lukashenko thought he could get away with this, and it appears that he may, may well do. So why was Alexander Lukashenko prepared to risk international ire by going after a journalist in this extraordinary way. I mean, who is Roman Protesevich? What, what do we know about his work? He's a 26-year-old with a long record of opposition activity. He's bright, comes from a quite a privileged background, broke with the regime, been living in, in exile in Lithuania since 2019. And it's worth noting here what an important role Lithuania plays as the sort of 
capital in exile of Belarus. You know, the two countries share not just a common border, but common history and, and perhaps even a common destiny. And he set up a telegram channel, telegram is a bit like WhatsApp, called Nechta, which has about a million subscribers. And he then moved on and set, set up another slightly more specialised channel. So he's a very big cheese in the Belarusian opposition world, both lambasting and ridiculing the, the regime, but also organising protests and, and sort of trying to get the opposition to be more cohesive and effective. And what sort of journalism was he doing? Do we know why Lukashenko was so affronted by his work? Well, I read him all the time, and it's just yeah, it's, it's mainstream opposition stuff. It's just saying that yeah, it's, it's corrupt, it's thuggish, you know, Sento's been arrested, there's going to be a demonstration here, you raise money for legal support here. It's the sort of fairly public nitty-gritty of an opposition campaign in an authoritarian country. And as someone who's followed his work and has seen the impact he's had on the pro-democracy movement, what did you make of his dramatic arrest? Well, I'm sort of both horrified and not surprised because the repression's been ramping up in Belarus in recent days and there's another independent media organisation called TUT, T-U-T dot B-Y, and they've just been closed down and it looks as though Lukashenko realises he's got the opposition on the run, spring has come but the demonstrators are not returning in large numbers and so he's kind of won his war of attrition and he's now mopping up what's left and I think that that this is part of these sort of mopping up operations and he hopes to end up with a situation where all the opposition leaders are either in prison or in exile and that will then be checkmate as far as he's concerned. In this extraordinary crackdown on opposition activists, the Lukashenko regime added Roman Protesevich, a journalist, to their official blacklist of terrorist figures, putting him on a par with Islamic State jihadists. They charged him with inciting public disorder and social hatred. The incitement charges carry a maximum sentence of 15 years, but if he's now found guilty of terrorism he could face the death penalty. After two days of being held by the authorities in Belarus, both Roman Protasevich and his girlfriend, Sofia Sapega, have been filmed in what the international community are calling a forced confession. Roman's father said his son looked like he had a broken nose in the video and there are fears that the couple are facing torture. People are beaten, tortured, humiliated, raped, sexually assaulted in detention in these ghastly Belarusian prisons. And um, just the other day, uh, another Belarusian opposition leader died of a heart attack, having first gone blind in prison. Um, He'd been sentenced for his opposition activities. So there's every reason to be scared about what happens to you if you fall into the clutches of the regime. This is like a black hole in the heart of Europe. And that's why so many Belarusians, including Rawan, now live in exile. The international community has been outraged by the events of the last few days and have condemned the actions of the Lukashenko regime. This was a shocking act, diverting a flight between two EU member states. This outrageous behaviour needs a strong answer. There will be additional sanctions on individuals that are involved in the hijacking. The scenario, as reported, is a shocking assault on civil aviation and an assault on international law. It represents a danger to civilian flights everywhere. 
In Belarus, meanwhile, the Lukashenko regime have merely shrugged off the international outcry. They've said it's um, they needed to do this and it was uh, an entirely justified operation. They're getting some diplomatic support from the Russians who say, well, this is something the United States does all the time. The Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, has even accused the West of double standards, pointing to an incident eight years ago when a plane carrying the Bolivian president, Evo Morales, was diverted to Vienna because it was suspected that the whistleblower, Edward Snowden, who's wanted in the US for espionage, was on board. One Russian propagandist said she thought it was a wonderful, audacious move by Belarus. And I think you have to think yourself into their frame of mind. They feel they're a sort of besieged fortress surrounded by the hostile, mendacious, rapacious West, and that everything's justified. And they would say that Roman Patskevich was just a puppet of the West and he had fermented insurrection inside Belarus. And of course, given the chance, they should make sure he faces the criminal prosecution that, in their view, he so richly deserves. It's been a turbulent few years for Belarus. Mass protests rang out across the country last August, following a presidential election that was widely condemned for being rigged. Alexander Lukashenko refused to let go of power, clinging on for a sixth term in office. So what do we know about the country's despotic leader? Well, Lukashenko came to power in 1994, and that was really the last free election. I actually covered it. It seems a very long time ago. I was rather impressed. I thought things were so bad in Belarus, they couldn't get any worse, and how wrong I was. He was a sort of rough-hewn outsider, and, I mean, a slightly sort of Trumpian figure, but he seemed a a contrast to the old sort of communist apparatchiks who have been running the place for the last couple of years, and... I wrote something for The Economist saying something like, Belarusians, so you want change, and Lukashenko seems to be the best way of getting it. Um, but I'm obviously deeply embarrassed about that now. And since then, the sort of screws have gradually turned. And, and he was quite popular at the beginning. It wasn't too hard for him to stay in power because lots of Belarusians said, well, thank goodness we're not experiencing these sort of extraordinary upheavals that are going on in Russia with drunken Yeltsin and high inflation and wages not being paid, and Belarus stayed pretty stable. But over the years, stability turned into stagnation and then into repression. And this summer, he was going for a sixth presidential term against Mrs. Tikhanovskaya, who I mentioned earlier, who's um, now, now in exile. And he rather underestimated her, I think, because he's very much a sort of male chauvinist and he doesn't think women are sort of serious adversaries, but she actually did rather well. And so the election was spectacularly rigged. She was arrested, mistreated, but then eventually ended up in exile. And since then, there have been spasmodic protests, sometimes very big at the beginning, but increasingly small, coupled with a well-targeted punitive sanctions against the people involved. And I think that the Belarusians are now pretty badly beaten about by the regime and it's hard to see how the opposition regains its footing. They failed to make the regime crumble at the bottom. They failed to get it to split at the top. They failed really to get international pressure on it. Putin made it quite clear he wasn't going to see Lukashenko toppled and they're in a sort of strategic dead end at the moment, I'm afraid. So Lukashenko has been propped up by support from Russia. But why has the international community, at least until now, done so little to stand up to his regime? I think that one trouble is that nobody really cares. Um, the Lithuanians care tremendously, and some Poles care, and so, some Latvians and Estonians. But for most countries um, in Europe, Belarus, it seems a sort of long way away, although it's actually only a day's drive from Berlin. 
there's a lot of other things going on. We've had the pandemic and other pressing priorities. So nobody really cares and nobody really knows what's going on. And Russia cares very much. And for, for Russia, this is its most important sort of Western geopolitical bastion. And it's, uh, Putin's determined that it shouldn't fall into the hands of pro-Western Democrats. Belarus is vital to Putin's strategic interests, but he hasn't always had the warmest of relationships with the country's leader, Alexander Lukashenko. Well, it's an extremely sort of unhappy, dysfunctional relationship between Putin and Lukashenko. Putin absolutely despises Lukashenko. Putin's sort of what one might call the Soviet aristocracy, being the Foreign Intelligence Service, although not in a tremendously distinguished capacity. And Lukashenko used to run a chicken farm. Um, Although they both like ice hockey, they've not bonded. The analogy I use is that um, Lukashenko is like a sort of badly behaved dog and Putin's the master and the dog behaves badly and Putin beats it sort of brutally and the dog whimpers and slinks away. And then a bit later on it sort of behaves badly again and Putin then beats it again. So Putin's quite clear that it, nobody else is going to have that dog. And so he keeps Belarus afloat with cheap gas and oil, which keeps the Belarusian economy going and loans every now and again. And in return, tries to extract concessions. And he would like closer military integration. He might want a military base in Belarus. There's always been this talk of a so-called union state, which would be an actual sort of like England and Scotland type union. And that's been talked about since the 90s, but never actually happened. Mainly, I think, because the Russians don't want to take on Belarus's debts. But it's a good sort of talking point. And it's there in Putin's back pocket. If he wanted to, he could say, right, we've now got the union state of Russia and Belarus. And Lukashenko doesn't want that. He likes to be king of his own castle, but he doesn't have many options. One of them is to flirt with China, and he does that every now and again, but the Chinese don't really reciprocate. And another is to flirt with the West. But again, the West has seen that movie already, so we don't take it terribly seriously when he suddenly says he wants to be besties with us. And how do ordinary citizens in Belarus feel about Russia's role in their country's affairs? dangerous to make these grand characterizations. And I think if I was talking on Belarusian radio and they said, what are the people of Britain like? I would hesitate to be too sweeping. But I think that it was very badly bashed about in the Second World War, lost a quarter of its population and all its intelligentsia and most of its buildings. And so it's had a very long, slow road back. And for many Belarusians, stability and uh, peace and quiet is absolutely the most important thing. And that's encouraged a certain sort of political passivity. But I think things are changing. And there's a whole generation now which has no memory, not only no memory of the Second World War, but no memory even of the Soviet Union. That's where the opposition is quite strong and they're well-educated. It's an industrialised society, much more sort of balanced economic picture than, than Russia. Potentially it could do quite well. It could join the European Union very easily if it wanted to. And Belarusians are having enormous affection for them. One Belarusian friend of mine said, we're the hobbits of Eastern Europe. We just want to live quietly and enjoy, smoke a pipe, have a nice meal and talk to our friends. We don't have any ambitions to sort of be anything grand. But sadly, that has been taken away from them. And they've become a sort of uh, spectacular political black hole, which uh, is um, attracting far too many headlines of the wrong kind. So how should the world respond to the actions of the Lukashenko regime? We'll have more in just a moment. But first, a message from the editor. Hi, I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash Stories of Our Times. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The CEO of Ryanair, Michael O'Leary, called it an act of state-sponsored hijacking after one of their flights was forcibly diverted and two of its passengers were arrested by the Belarusian KGB. How should the world react to such a brazen violation of international norms? Well, I'd, I'd like to think we could sentence the Belarusian elite to be permanently at a Ryanair check-in, being told that their bags are too big. <laughs> but I, I think, seriously, there should be no surprise about this. This regime's had blood on its hands for 20 years, and we've always pandered to it. This isn't the first time the regime in Belarus has gone rogue. The EU and America have already imposed sanctions, including travel bans, and asset freezes on many of the key figures in power after the elections were rigged last year and popular protests were met with a brutal crackdown. On Monday, the EU and the UK said they would ramp up sanctions and called for a ban on Belarus's national airline. But is that enough? If we wanted to, we could be tough. But the trouble with that is it penalises ordinary Belarusians, and we don't really want to do that. We nothing we like Belarusians. It's just the regime we don't like, and and they don't. Unlike the Russian regime, they don't tend to come and sort of send their children to their schools and and universities and buy mansions in Chelsea. Lukashenko quite likes skiing in Austria, but he hasn't even done that recently. So uh, I've got modest expectations. What we should be doing is saying to all the Belarusian ambassadors in all 27 EU countries, you go home in the next 24 hours. Um, so go and pack your bags. And by the way, you're going home by car because we've cut all the planes off and we could be freezing the regime's assets abroad, such as they are. But most importantly, we should be going after Russia. If Russia gives this regime geopolitical cover, as it does, we should be saying to Russia, your dog just bit us and we're going to make you pay. That really leaves us only with Russia as an option. I would actually be in favour of giving visa-free travel and university places and a lot of support to Belarusians and openness and welcome to them while being very tough on the regime and then really directing our fire against Putin and saying, you are this regime's backer, you're the paymaster, you're the puppet master, and we're sending the bill to you. And that, I think, would wipe the smile off Putin's face. But unfortunately, the EU, and in fact Britain, just don't want to do that. The problem for Britain is that regimes like Belarus and Russia use the city of London to launder dirty money. Many of Britain's allies want that to stop. Not least Estonia, where British troops are currently stationed as part of a NATO mission. This was the Estonian president speaking to the BBC. Naturally, there is so much money siphoned off from non-democratic regimes in London. Bilateral discussions are, are not so public, so they remain bilateral. But indeed, uh, I am not one of those who beats um, about the bush. The city of London is known as the laundromat because it's such a wonderful place for Russians to come and scrub their money clean. And we show no desire, really, to get to grips with dirty Russian money. 
and the EU shows no desire to shed its dependence on, or particularly Germany, shows no desire to shed its dependence on cheap Russian gas. So we are in a pretty bleak position, I think, certainly if you care about the fate of poor Roman Pratskevich, who I suspect is going to have a very bleak time over the next few years, if indeed he lasts that long. Do we know if Russia would have been told about Lukashenko's plans in advance? I mean, the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, has said that Russia must have agreed the plan. Is that right? I don't know. I think that it's the sort of reckless, slightly bonkers thing that Lukashenko could quite easily do. This is a man who, 20-something years ago, shot down a hot air balloon because the wind had blown it into Belarusian airspace and he ordered his fighters to go and shoot down these hapless balloonists. So he is a short-tempered, impetuous, megalomaniac and very thin-skinned. And I think it's quite possible he just heard that Protasevich was going to be crossing the Russian territory and he just said, you know what, we'll just let's whack him, get him down on the ground and we'll cut him off. And that would be possible. It's also possible he consulted with the Russians. It's possible the Russians said this is a great idea because they thought what we want is a really big geopolitical jolt which will end up with Belarus being forced much closer to the east and this will lead to the final rupture of relations with the west. So as so often when looking at Belarus, we have a rather few facts and rather a lot of guesswork. In talking about potential sanctions that might still be imposed, there's been lots of mention of halting the pipelines that carry gas from Russia to Western Europe as a kind of economic sanction. Is that a good idea? There's lots of pipelines, and there's one that's nearly completed, which is Nord Stream 2. That's a natural gas pipeline going from Russia to Germany. Unfortunately, America, which has been putting some quite tough sanctions on Germany to try and stop it being completed, seems to have just dropped the ball on that. So now it's sort of more likely it will be completed. Um, but that would be a very good point. If Germany would do that, that would be great. I think the problem with cutting off the gas pipelines that run across Belarus and Ukraine is where do we get the gas from? It's easy to do that when summer's coming, but in winter it doesn't look so clever. And Europe at the moment is still dependent on quite a lot of Russian gas. And I think one thing is to focus hard on Roman Pratasevich and say he must not die in prison, let's get him out, let's really, you know, UN Security Council, make him an international prisoner of conscience, and then have a sort of strategic plan to try and apply long-term pressure on Russia. And there's a great many things we can do on that, from boosting our military presence in Eastern Europe, helping Ukraine, sorting out the dirty money problem, which I mentioned, going after the cyber criminals, going after individuals who have assets in the West. But at some point, I mean, what needs to happen is that Putin has to pick the phone up to Lukashenko and say, sorry, you've got to let this guy go. It's just causing too much grief. And we have to create the circumstances in which that phone call happens. I think the difficulty is that we don't want to isolate Belarus and we don't want to burn bridges with the Russian people. We don't want to stoke all the toxic propaganda that the Kremlin's pumping out over Russian television about how the West hates us and wants to weaken us and destroy Russia. We don't. We want to have a strong, friendly Russia. So it is tricky, but the the key to this is doing things in unity uh, with Europe and the United States and Britain all playing from the same song sheet. The West is divided and distracted by COVID and other things and complacent and naive and greedy. And really the only country in Europe which has really shown proper leadership on this is Lithuania, a country of three million people. Together with its Baltic neighbours, Lithuania has been a vocal critic of Lukashenko. This was the president's reaction. I think the time of rhetorics and vocal expression 
past, it's over. We need clear actions in order to change the pattern of behavior of this very dangerous regime. Lithuania is urging the international community to impose the harshest sanctions against the Lukashenko regime. The question now is what comes next for the people of Belarus? How much hope can they have for the future? I don't think there is a single great hope. Some people say just hunker down and keep going, concentrate on restoring the Belarusian language and culture, which has been you know, half eradicated under Soviet rule and had a pretty tough time since. And you know that Lukashenko can't live forever and Putin can't live forever and you know go for the kind of long haul. Some people just say, let's give up and emigrate and yeah, we all live Belarus on the outside. Some Belarusians have been doing that since 1918, when the last properly independent Belarusian republic was chased out by the Bolsheviks. Other people will say, let's bury our differences with the regime and just try and get on with ordinary life and hope to improve things around the margins. And other people are still going for the big bang of if we just get a really good general strike going and a million people on the streets of Minsk and half a million on the other in the streets, the other big cities, the regime will crumble and it'll be 1989 all over again. And obviously my heart says, yippee, and my head says, not very likely. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Times columnist Edward Lucas. You can read more of Edward's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was Chris Wade. The executive producer is Asia Fuchs, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If there's a story you'd like us to cover, any ideas for future episodes, or if you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do drop us a line. We're at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.